You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. Welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I'm going to be your quote-unquote immunized host, Abraham. And I'm going to be your follow science unfold in real time host, Shane. Wow. <laughs> that's a that's quite the title, quite the moniker you've accrued <laughs> yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's the little things. Fair. Okay. <laughs> so today, and actually before we start, we're a psychology podcast, we're a science podcast. We like to talk about all of those things. Uh, if you'd like to learn more, see videos of us, check us out on Patreon, all kinds of bonus stuff. We get to see us, you know, behind the scenes sort of things. Rate, subscribe, all, all the stuff, all the stuff, all the stuff. You know what I'm all trying to say, right? All things that people do for podcasts, yes. Yeah, yeah, all the podcast things. So we're going to jump into this topic that is a heavy topic, and so that's why I'm, I'm maybe sounding a little flustered. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Hoping that you get to, you enjoy what you hear. We're talking about COVID-19. Yes, it is a uh, topic. There's a lot to unpack within this. Yeah, I'm given to understand that people have been talking about this for a little while. Mm-hmm. I today was going to blame COVID. I just got a haircut and I was going to blame COVID on the fact that I hadn't got a haircut. But but, but then my uh, stylist told me I hadn't been there in three and a half years. So <laughs> I have other reasons, I guess. <laughs> There's much more going on for you. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So we'll start by talking about COVID. This, this conversation is going to evolve into what came out of COVID. But let's begin with the fact that this whole pandemic thing caught the whole world pretty off guard. Certainly caught me off guard. Yeah. Not necessarily totally unprecedented, like we've dealt with pandemics in the past. Also, not entirely unexpected. There were certainly people who have been saying we're on the cusp of something like this happening. But really, we weren't prepared as a species, as a culture, as a country, as a planet. We, were, we just weren't ready for this. This was, this was something that, that caught us off guard. Right. It's kind of like ease into this conversation we want to have a little bit of background information so this is going to be a little bit redundant for some this is going to be obnoxiously simplistic for others but the idea is that we want to kind of lay the groundwork for this conversation there's a lot to unpack here so just to let you know we're planning to separate this separate this into two topics one we're going to give a lot of background and then introduce our main discussion point and get started on that then we're going to finish that up in a part two so that you aren't listening to a a movie length podcast episode Yes. Okay. One thing that many people may or may not know is that a coronavirus is a type of virus that is characterized by a protein on its surface that gives it a sort of spiky or crown-like, which is what corona means, appearance. So Dr. Spiker, the original, is, or I guess one type of coronavirus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where we got our, that's where we got our last name from. Yeah. <laughs> Originally, it was Shane coronavirus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, we had to change it when our family came over from the United States. The theory was that we used to set up railroad spikes and, and your German ancestors got our last name from that. But it's actually it's more related to this. So, you know, okay, you're, great. you're welcome, I guess. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> <Ooh>. Hell, <laughs> Hell rain, rain down fury on your house. <laughs> Just kidding. All right. So the flu is is a type of virus similar to this. It's actually an influenza virus. They do have some common things, but the flu virus and the corona, the what's called the SARS-CoV-2 or novel coronavirus or COVID are caused by different viruses. I feel like that's an important point because people in our main topic will 
talk about that a little bit. COVID-19 is named so because it is the coronavirus disease first identified in 2019. So corona, C-O, virus, V-I, disease, D, 2019, you get the 19 there, and that's how it's abbreviated. It's really important to note that we don't have any concrete evidence as to the origins of COVID-19, but the evidence that we do have mostly suggests that it's a zoonotic in origin, but we don't know for sure. And I think that's really important to recognize this kind of in the, in the common dialogue about this disease is we just don't know where it actually came from. Lots of theories, lots of speculation, lots of things still on the table. Again, it really just makes sense to what is the most evidence that we have and what does that seem to indicate? It mostly so far seems to indicate that it was passed from animals, but there could be other things we haven't learned yet. So what makes the most sense right now, based on the evidence that we do have, is that it came from animals. Yeah. All right. Absolutely. As many of people know, obviously, this is a respiratory disease, meaning in part that it is spread via moisture droplets that we exhale that are too small for us to see, but they are nevertheless there. We exhale out of our mouth or nose. Not sure about farts. But we usually cover that part of our body with cloth anyway, so it's possible mm-hmm. that pointing this out means people will start walking around with their assholes <laughs> defiantly hanging out of their pants. Oh, <laughs> uh, you just gave Florida so many ideas. <laughs> so I, I don't know if it, if it can be passed that way, but uh, but it is something that we exhale at least to our lungs. <laughs> Yeah. Now, due in part to how increasingly common international travel has become, it was only a matter of time before the disease started spreading pretty rapidly. Now, this disease was particularly or is particularly well suited for widespread infection. It takes several days to incubate to show symptoms all the while you are contagious and it is highly infectious, meaning that it's easily spread. Also, its effects are so wildly variable that tracing it is nearly impossible. Now, someone might be infected and spread it to dozens of people and never show any symptoms at all, but several of the of the people that contact it may pass it on or even die. Yeah, exactly. So, in the early days, we knew so little. China has identified the cause of the mysterious new virus. Coronavirus. Coronavirus. There are fears a rapidly spreading virus has reached Australia. This is a rapidly emerging situation where there is not a cause for alarm. The first U.S. case has been detected. There's confirmation the coronavirus has reached Australia. I have today declared that the coronavirus presents a public health emergency in the United States. The Prime Minister Boris Johnson has tested positive for coronavirus. Countries around the world have now reported more than one million coronavirus cases. Prime Minister Boris Johnson has been transferred to the intensive care unit. The city may have to temporarily bury bodies on public land if they run out of morgue space. Better days will return. We will be with our friends again. We will be with our families again. We will meet again. If everyone had taken it seriously and like really done something about as we knew that this was spreading, it most likely would have simply died out and we would have been back to normal after a month or two. It would be gone and we'd never have to worry about it again for the future of humanity. At the risk of stating the obvious, that's not what happened. So experts looked at the data 
that they were given that we did have at the time, and they made several predictions, all of which came true with remarkable accuracy. Yeah, for example, some scientists had predicted, you know, essentially how much it would spread. They sort of were predicting early on we would have anywhere between tens of thousands of people contacting and spreading it and eventually dying. And then as we got more and more data, they got more and more accurate with, okay, by this point, we're going to reach 100,000 deaths. We did pretty much, you know, within a certain amount of days of when it was predicted to happen. Within this range, we're going to expect this many people infected at that milestone as well, about the same time range. People were predicting that at certain places we'd see it spread more than others. That's exactly what happened. There's kind of just a list. There's a list of predictions that scientists made based on the information that we had and said, if we do this, this is what will happen. If, for example, we lock down, then we're going to see a decrease in hospitalizations. That happened. Yeah. If we don't lock down, we're going to see an increase. That also happened. You're right. You know, if we wear masks, we're going to see a decrease. That happened. If we don't wear masks, we're going to see an increase. That happened. If people go to Miami and celebrate spring break, we're going to see an increase in coronavirus cases. That happened. Yep. If people go to these giant rallies where they're unmasked and standing close to people, we're going to see an increase in outbreaks. That also happened. Right. So there's like a number of things that scientists more or less said were going to happen. And then they happened just the way that they predicted. And I think take that as you will, but really, just taking into consideration that these are people whose job it is, is to figure out what do we know? What do we think is going to happen based on what we know? And that's, they're pretty good at it. You know, they make mistakes, but they're a lot better than people going with their gut feeling. And this is probably the best argument for something like data and why you should use data to make these decisions. Now, another, another part of this, and it's really important to kind of in the context of COVID. So we know things started getting worse. We know things shut down. We know kind of there is a splinter group of people that have, uh, you know, their preferences for, you know, how they handle this stuff. But one of the things that came out of this is immunization research and, and really seeing kind of that process. Now, immunization research is normally pretty difficult because there's a lack of political will a lack of a sense of urgency, little funding, small groups of people working on it. There's not a lot of kind of stuff that goes into vaccine research, especially given that like there's not a lot of diseases that are so deadly that they are asking for vaccines in those certain spaces. So when there was a need for the COVID vaccine, all of a sudden there was a lot of motivation to get that done. Yeah, pretty much every one of those barriers, no longer barriers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And specifically, this is happening where really circa of like March 2020. The WHO has officially declared that this is a pandemic. The countries are going into lockdown. People are trying to figure out what to do, and things are changing really, really, really fast. I mean, within a given 24-hour period, you could have like three major news events that normally would be three times a year, and this was happening every day. Right. And the Trump administration in the United States, Trump was the president in office. The Trump administration created a program called Operation Warp Speed. And this specific program was designed to facilitate establishing some kind of preventative, some kind of way of dealing with this pandemic that we had. And so we're just going to go through and list all the things that were entailed in Operation Warp Speed. One was that there was a coordination between the Departments of Health and Human Services and the Departments of Defense. And so these are two groups that don't normally do a lot of work together, working together to help make this happen. That's a big deal to get those two groups to work together. Yeah. Now, they also supported the development of individual vaccine efforts using different existing technologies. You've got mRNA, you've got replication defective live vector and recombinant subunit adjuvanted protein. And that 
just so everybody's listening now, that took me like several takes to get through that because <laughs> that was absurd. Justin will probably put that on the back end of this and we'll have fun with that. Now, that is, they got everyone working on this simultaneously, employing different platforms rather than just using one technology or just one or two manufacturers. They really got a lot of people involved in this. And normally you've only got one or two people working on a particular technology or particular, not people, but maybe organizations working on a particular technology, particular delivery system, particular vaccine. And they've really got all hands on deck here. Yeah. So for example, you've got sort of lab over here is is decided oh we're going to work on this ebola vaccine we're going to go with mrna and we're going to use this one technology platform and they're going to spend several years working on that because that's all they've got and they only have funding to do it a certain number of hours right this is different now everything's on the table every conceivable possible way to go about approaching this everybody is trying this is the scene in apollo 13 when the filter goes out and they have to figure out how to build a filter out of all the things they have at their disposal. They have everything they can they, that's that's on the ship. They have everything available. They build a filter that works. Yes. Awesome. Old reference. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> 1996, baby. I think that's what it is. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Also, once the vaccines were ready for clinical trials, they started already doing mass manufacturing so that. Should the vaccines prove safe and effective, they'd be ready to roll out immediately. I mean, there was a risk that that also could mean a ton of things being thrown away. And that yeah. did happen. For a few companies, this meant that they had already manufactured a sizable inventory that couldn't be used. And that's because they did not successfully complete those clinical trials. It was a gamble. So they, had, they were pretty confident in their product. They were like, we feel like we've done all the right things. We're at the right step. So... Normally, what they would do is test it in these small doses that are very expensive. They make in small amounts, and then they start manufacturing it if it passes all of the tests and all of that. This one, they're like, we've done all the things right. We're going to assume we can start manufacturing this now. And that meant that some people who didn't do all the things right, because this is a brand new virus we're fighting, they just lost out on some stuff. Yeah, it happens. Another aspect was that they conducted clinical trials simultaneously. Now, to oversimplify this a bit, clinical means that it is ready to be tested on humans. This means that it has already completed cell and animal testing, and there are four potential phases, zero, one, two, and three, which is just, uh, you know, they could have gone one, two, three, four. I don't know. I feel like that's a zero is a zero is an interesting thing. We should do a whole episode on zero one day. That'd be fun. Now, often phase zero is skipped in normal research. So each phase has different goals. Does it do what it's supposed to do? Is it safe? Does it work? And is it better than the current alternatives? Now, each phase tends to have more people. Normally, they do one study to see if it works, one to see what dosage is needed, one to see that it's safe, and so on and so forth. So eventually, they move through all these different studies to see kind of how this works. Now, what OWS did... OWS is Operation Warp Speed. ...was allow those different trials to be conducted at the same time. They had a group of people as test subjects for safety, and these actually did go first, a group of people as subjects for efficacy, and so on. So they had they had multiple groups happening at the same time. And essentially, this took what would be years of baby steps away by asking just one question at a time. Instead of running them consecutively, they ran them concurrently. They ran them all at once, and they got results rapidly. Now, it was yeah. all the exact same steps of a regular type of a process for developing a vaccine. They just compressed the timeline and they just did it all at the same time. Yeah. And exactly as you said, like this, another, this is another gamble where things could have gone horribly wrong. But again, they were at the point where we're going to do all of the things normally that would be spread out over time all at the same time. And then that <laughs> there could be some 
fallout of that. But fortunately, there there was very little of that. There were some things where their manufacturers that got started, they got ramped up, they got into testing, had to stop because there were some adverse reactions on that sort of thing. And that's kind of to be expected. That's a reason they don't normally go this route is to avoid that sort of thing. But it is what happened. Yeah. Now, another thing that allowed the the really rapid development of this vaccine was that different manufacturers were sharing their data with one another. This is huge. They were never going to do that. Yeah, they were never going to come up with a recipe for a vaccine and then just share that with a competitor. No, but we were in a a very different time right now. And by doing this, they could learn from each other's successes and failures rather than having all of the different information just be in their own little silos Mm -hmm. where they didn't know what they didn't know. They didn't know what other people knew. There was a huge collaborative effort here, and that really changed how much time was spent on this. Oh, if that is not an argument against capitalism, I don't know what is. <laughs> <laughs> what they accomplished is actually way more incredible than people give it credit for. It really is. Now, another thing they did, besides those cool things, they partnered with other manufacturers to scale up production more quickly. So normally one company would use their manufacturing capability to develop a vaccine. And however, this would have taken years to roll out to the public at large. And instead, once we had something that worked, everyone who didn't have something effective dropped what they were doing and helped make the effective stuff. Incredible. Yes. This is such an incredible feat. Truly. Yeah. And now the government does have the ability to force companies to sort of manufacture things that they need, which the Trump administration did do to force companies to start building ventilators because there was a shortage of ventilators. So even when hospital beds were full, people were basically dying because they couldn't breathe. And it was pretty far down the road in the pandemic, but it did happen. And so, again, this is not unprecedented, but it just doesn't occur. And a lot of these these companies were doing this voluntarily because they wanted to help they wanted to get things moving again. Yeah. Another thing that they did was they got really strategic with ordering their supplies. They figured out essentially what supplies were critical to the development and manufacturing of these vaccines, and they ordered them in mega bulk. I mean, we're talking bulk that would make Costco and Sam's Club look like pitiful gas station size quantities. And this way, they always had the materials and supplies that they needed on hand. And this was particularly important given the strangled supply chains that were affected by the pandemic. So they were just like, (laughs) for the people hoarding toilet paper, they're like, okay, toilet paper is going to be a necessary thing. We're going to order 120 trillion rolls of toilet paper and store store them in these massive warehouses. And so they, they were like, they were mega, mega ordering these things. And it makes sense. Like you have to have the supply to make this thing happen for the, the larger public. Exactly. Now, finally, they hired a boatload of people to help with all of this, and they diverted efforts from other projects to bring on the help. This included the Department of Defense personnel that actually helped to service as quality control. So they worked with them to make sure that they, they was consistent, that what was going out was constantly checked and approved for that quality. So I want to put it this way. Basically, doing research on vaccines normally was like trying to navigate a Walmart during a Black Friday sale. One of those sales where it's only on Friday from like 6 a.m. to 8 a.m., and everything you ever wanted to buy was a dollar each. The lines are impossible. You're waiting forever. There's scarce resources. You're never going to get this done, or it's going to take a really long time, and you're lucky if you get it done. Yeah. That was what it was like. What this policy did, the Operation Warp Speed, this was like clearing out the entire Walmart and giving the scientists souped-up race cars, and then they could just blast their way through this Walmart (laughs) in record time 
because every conceivable obstacle was set aside. They were given ample time, ample money, ample access to whatever they needed like they've never experienced before. So that's part of why this went so, so fast. I would liken this to something like a war effort. I mean, it's not the same, obviously. You're talking about public health versus something that does the opposite of public health. But when you talked about like the war efforts during World War II and like how factories who were making like pillows and like dresses would convert to making weapons or parts and stuff like that. I mean, they, this is this is a similar thing. I mean, it is these organizations were co-opted to serve what is at the time considered the greater good. This is considered the greater good right now to help people and help society. So this is this is why you're seeing kind of all the stuff lifted, all these barriers and seeing how fast and uh, without barriers, things can actually happen. Remarkable what can be accomplished when we all sort of decide we have a common goal that's for the interest of everybody. Yeah. And that's what happened is we, you know, we took what normally would be a long, effortful trial and error sort of system and said, we're going to get this done now. Yeah. We're not waiting 10 years. This is happening right now. Absolutely. And awesome that it did. Okay. That's essentially what happened with Operation Work Speed and a very important part in understanding the timeline here and why things worked out the way that they did. So given these conditions, it's unsurprising that we had several vaccines faster than had ever been accomplished before. The previous record was a vaccine in four years. Yeah, that's wild. That's how long the the fastest vaccine ever put through. It was four years. And this was like 30 years ago or something like that. Right. And that was also pulling out a lot of the stops and again, didn't have the kind of technology we do today. This was accomplished in less than one year, significantly less than one year. Yeah. I mean, this really set the bar for what we can do when we put ourselves together and work on this. Now, that's it's been almost two years, actually, since this has been available. Actually, over two years since these have even been available. So there was continued collection of data to sort of continue to track the long-term effects of this as well. So we we're now pretty flush with data. It's incredible to think about this part of it, right? So if the first record was four years, we got three in less than a year. That's right. Not just one, three that were that were deemed effective. So like, I, I just want to kind of like think about that a little bit. But now, because now we have a vaccine and because people are motivated to get back to normal, there were many people that were eagerly, eagerly seeking ways to get vaccinated. They were looking for that. They were motivated for that. They wanted that and they were bought in. But there were others that were hesitant about the new vaccine. They were not bought in. They were skeptical about this, this new technology that existed. And so that's largely what the bulk of the rest of this discussion is, is going to be. For those who were lucky enough to be eligible to get the vaccine there was a bottleneck in which people just could not get the vaccine fast enough. There was so much demand that suppliers could barely keep up. People were lying, cheating, finding loopholes, selling it on the black market, dressing up like old people to wait in lines, to do whatever they could. Some doctors I even read about were making some back alley deals, as I said, to get the shot to ineligible people that would pay them a premium for their discretion and putting themselves on the line, if you will. Uh, so this was like a thing that happened in the early days of access to the vaccine. So, you know, all the good that we just touted about everybody coming together and helping people just gets thrown out the window right now. Like, you know, it's like we're like, yes, humanity is worth saving. And then it's like, nah, maybe not. Well, well, I think it all goes back to there was a coordinated, deliberate, well put together effort to develop the vaccine 
there was not the final part of this, which is a coordinated, well-designed effort to roll out the vaccine. Yeah, yeah, so exactly. The fact that it existed, it stopped mattering when there wasn't a way to get it out. Right, exactly. So then all of a sudden, even as the supply continued at warp speed, demand started to rapidly dry up, right? So with only half of the country partially or fully vaccinated, the vaccine doses at first matched demand and then quickly surpassed it. So such that vaccines were simply sitting in cold storage gathering cold dust. So what ends up happening is there's so much of it that nobody's even using it. And and there was a period of time where we were hearing that people would like prepare, like, like companies would prepare doses and have them ready for people just to walk in and get doses and people wouldn't even get them and they'd have to throw them out. I mean, that's like, imagine that for a second, how much demand there was. And people were like, nah, I'm just, we got to toss it out. So yeah, we couldn't pay people to take the shot who hadn't taken it yet. So what happened? Like what went on? Where was that change? Yeah. WTF as the kids WTF said as, 20 years ago. I, I believe, yeah, I believe kids still say that. Okay. I got a teenager. I'm hip. So yeah, as I said, we're really talking about vaccine hesitancy. Specifically, we're going to be talking about the main reasons that people cite for feeling hesitant about getting vaccinated, and this is specifically in reference and only in reference to the COVID-19 vaccine. We're going to talk about the main reasons are given, and we're going to bust the, the tar out of some dumb myths, <laughs> and we're also going to point out some ironies in that. And furthermore, we're going to recommend some solutions to this problem. That'll come mostly in the second follow-up episode to this discussion. So let's simply start by listing the reasons why people are hesitant. So we're going to list them in groups and then take each group and tackle the reasons one at a time. And to group these, we designated them as general reasons, pretend reasons, and motivated reasons. Exactly. So <laughs> I like I like pretend reasons, but let's go ahead and start with general reasons. I think that's a good place to start here. All right. And to describe what I mean by general, the reason that we're calling this general is this is in reference to it's not like a specific kind of thing it's more like it's a legitimate sort of global concern if you will okay so let's start with the first general reason which is the history that medicine has and that many people still remember despite forgetting mm -hmm. everything else yeah and one of the the main people that i think is worth really talking about here is the black community particularly in the united states but definitely around the world and this, for a lot of people, is one of the obvious ones. People of color have been lied to and horribly mistreated by doctors in the past. Yeah. We talked about this a little bit in a couple of other episodes, but look at the Tuskegee experiment. Yeah. We discussed this in our episode on ethics. Uh, this ran from 1932 to 1972, during which, and, and again, we're not going to go into super detail, but just a quick overview. This went from 1932 to 1972, during which doctors, actual medical doctors, they told these African-American men who were diagnosed with syphilis that those men, that they were receiving treatment, but instead they were actually being given a placebo, even though effective a treatment was available. Mm -hmm. And they did this just to watch what happens when the symptoms progress. And so understandable that there's concern there. Or speaking uh, to the idea of just the community at large, there are the scientists and doctors who believed in eugenics, which broadly means improving humans. Genetic engineering ultimately meant forced sterilization of black people. And this happened far too often. This happened way too many times. And this, so, you know, there's probably going to be a healthy distrust of medical professionals in these spaces. 
or Henrietta Lacks, whose cells were harvested while she was undergoing cancer treatment. Hers were the only ones to reproduce indefinitely, so her cells were unknowingly donated to Johns Hopkins, used around the world without her permission or recognition for years. Her cells were used to develop treatment for cervical cancer, to develop a vaccine for HPV, to develop the polio vaccine, to map the human genome, and as part of the foundation for the development for the field of virology and the development of treatments for HIV. She was one of those important people, and she likely would have consented to this. But the problem was that she was never given a choice or even informed that this was happening. So fortunately, right. several people brought up her story to the forefront so that she can at least get the recognition she deserves for her contribution to science and medicine. But this is a prime example of how that, that mistreatment can, can really impact people. Another one is a doctor named J. Marion Sims. Many people will, will recognize that name as someone who is broadly described as the father of modern gynecology. How he got to be this way was by experimenting on black women without anesthesia, by just doing horrific mutilated things to them to learn about the female reproductive system, and then publishing his findings and whatnot. And so that's just another example of just people horribly mistreating women of color and people of color in the name of sort of medicine and science. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Until as late as this decade. Right. So we're going to make sure that this, just so you know, this, this horrible history is a very recent history that's happened within our lifetimes. Okay. So doctors were trained to believe and often did believe that people with dark skin were less sensitive to pain. This is something that was taught, something that was trained. This is something that, that a lot of doctors ended up believing as, as a result of racist institutes. Or there are so few dark-skinned doctors that black and brown people didn't, and often still don't, feel like they have someone that they can fully trust, who's fully in their corner, even just for routine medicine. They don't have that. There's another story about dermatologists who were trained on all of these signs to look for for melanomas in the skin and have no idea what to do when they see a colored person's skin. The institution itself is just not even supporting people who don't have white skin. So again, just another example. And that again is also very recent. That's an ongoing problem now, today, right now. Yeah. So it's understandable why BIPOC folks are absolutely skeptical of the current medical establishment. There is a huge amount of trauma that goes along with that generational trauma that is not easily lifted in a system that just does not support people to get their basic needs met. And as a matter of fact, not only just doesn't support them to get their needs met, but also actively uses them and harms them. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so that's one of the general reasons why people might not trust medicine. And, and that's just the black community. Another one is, besides that, just the f***ed up things that have been done by scientists in service of medicine. We've already talked about some of them. We mentioned Tuskegee. We mentioned J. Marion Sims. But also... Typhoid Mary mm -hmm. is another example of this. So this was an Irish-born American immigrant. She was an asymptomatic carrier of typhoid. Mary was working as a cook and spreading typhoid in all of the places she was worked. She eluded authorities for some time, but they finally caught her. And at first she was quarantined for two years on an island. They brought her back to the mainland and told her that she couldn't cook anymore. But she ignored them and she kept serving as a cook. And rather than work with her, explain the situation, persuade her to do something other than cook or to participate in some healthcare program, they uh, quarantined her twice and voluntarily and essentially used her for lab experiments and forced her to do testing and stuff 
because of, of her being this asymptomatic carrier. Yeah. And eventually she was once again arrested and they marooned her on North Brother Island where she had to live out her days almost entirely alone. Yep. I mean, just that's 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 only one story. It's one story. All they had to do was explain the situation to her and really try and persuade her to volunteer to do something else rather than just stick around an island and say, we'll make sure you don't die because we didn't feed you. Right. Like they would drop off food and stuff. And that was about it. All right. So another one that I actually don't know if we've talked about much on the show. I think we've mentioned it at least sometimes, but I don't know. We've done a deep dive is the MK ultra program. Yeah. And there was a movie, I think the vaguely alluded to this called American ultra, which I actually really enjoyed. Yeah. This ran from 1953 to 1973. And I'm not going to go into super depth right now. Essentially, this was the U.S. government, specifically the armed forces branch of the government, testing LSD, trying out mind control, psychological torture, and other interviewing techniques meant to extract information. This is a wartime sort of effort. So we're kind of in Cold War era here a little bit, but also overlapping with other things going on. Obviously, this is a 20-year period. This was sometimes done on unknowing and unconsenting citizens as well as other military personnel trying to figure out like, how can we, you know, create these super soldiers and these psychic soldiers and that sort of thing. I feel like that's a, an episode in itself that we probably want to unpack. That's there's a lot, there's a lot going on there. Most of it, not good poisoning water supplies and stuff like that. Another general reason that people have a hard time with this stuff, or maybe they're generally hesitant is because they have a poor understanding of what is even going on. The thing about science is that it's constantly changing. And we've said this before is with new information, we're going to do better. We're going to try to understand a little bit deeper. We're going to try to understand a little bit more. We're going to try to change our course of action to accommodate what data we have that supports the best decision possible. And most people don't really understand that. Yeah. And while many people who listen to podcasts are going to be the same people who listen to the news and are at least moderately informed about things, many people simply aren't. They're not tuned into the news. They're not really constantly consuming media sources and outlets of actual like journalism, right? They don't know. And again, this is, I don't mean don't know is in their ignorant. I mean, they're, that's just not in their world. That's just not part of their daily routine. Right. What they hear, they get from secondhand sources, social media, friends through the grapevine would be a generous way to describe it, but they, they, they really get secondhand information. That's often skewed. It's biased. It's filtered. And it doesn't always capture the truth of what is the, the actual circumstances. It doesn't really capture the, the current status. I should say, maybe not the truth, but the current status of whatever that situation is. Right. They simply don't know. They don't, they don't know how effective the vaccines are. They don't know where they can get it. They don't know if they can get it. They don't know if they should get it. They don't know why they need it. They don't know how it was developed or how it was developed so quickly. They may only be peripherally aware that it exists at all. Like my knowledge of many of the most popular DJs. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Abraham doesn't know a thing about DJs today, (laughs) but that's actually my favorite joke that we've told so far. (laughs) Now, this podcast isn't going to solve it. We're not going to solve that thing. But we are just discussing why there is a hesitancy. And sometimes it's just being so disconnected from the news cycle that there's just not really any sort of information that's in those folks purview. Like they're not going to contact this information. They're going to contact sound bites and in small morsels. And oftentimes when it comes to some media outlets, very biased opinions about stuff that should be fact based. Speaking of which, of course, (laughs) foolish, hateful scallywags. 
such as Tucker Carlson, <laughs> only make it worse by actively disseminating ignorance about these things and more misinformation. So as a warning, in case you're triggered by this or have ever had the displeasure of listening to a pile of sentient feces talk, Tucker Carlson only speaks in rhetorical riddles so that he can pretend he's doing something that vaguely approximates journalism. Yeah. It's actually an old technique. I was eager to learn that this seemed like a sort of tried and true tactic of rhetoric. Yeah. So I decided to look it up. It's called sea lioning. Mm-hmm. S-E-A hyphen L-I-O-N-I-N-G. Sea lioning. Yeah. And essentially, this is defined specifically as trolling in which the questioner persistently and repeatedly asks for evidence while maintaining a pretense of civility and sincerity. And it can take the form of the sort of incessant bad faith invitations to engage in debate. So this is just a technique for persuading gullible audiences and not even necessarily gullible. It can get anyone worked up. Yeah. So we're going to play a clip of an example of this being used in which he asks a bunch of questions. So here it goes. What about this vaccine? Why are Americans being discouraged from asking simple, straightforward questions about it? Questions like, how effective are these drugs? Are they safe? Do you need a reason to turn on the vaccine? And what happens if you do turn it down? Will you be allowed to fly on airplanes? Or go to work? Or enter the front doors of Madison Square Garden? Oh, now they're telling us the vaccine has a delayed response. Okay, delayed by how long? They don't say. If vaccines work, why are vaccinated people still banned from living normal lives? Honestly, what's the answer to that? So maybe it doesn't work and they're simply not telling you that. Well, you hate to think that, especially if you've gotten two shots. But what's the other potential explanation? So these questions or this this whole interview, this line of questioning came out after the information about which he's asking had already been widely available and circulating. Right. But we'll respond to each one of his questions one at one at a time just to make sure that we have thoroughly addressed it, even though these are bad faith, rhetorical, nonsense questions. Okay. Yes. And for this one, I will be Fucker Carlson. I'm sorry, Tucker Carlson. <laughs> Let me adjust my stupid bow tie. <laughs> what about this vaccine? All right. That is not a real question. Why are Americans being discouraged from asking simple, straightforward questions about it? They aren't. Questions like, how effective are these drugs? About 95% effective, better than some other successful vaccines, and 100% more effective than ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine. Are they safe? Yes, extremely, and definitely safer than getting COVID. Do you need a reason to turn on the vaccine? I have no idea what that means. That is a nonsense question. What happens if you do turn it down? Well, you might die. You might also kill a stranger or someone you love. Will you be allowed to fly on airplanes? So far, yes. Go to work? Not if you work at Fox, but otherwise, yes. Answer the front doors of Madison Square Garden. What? (laughs) Do do, do people come knocking on the front doors often? Are a lot of people answering the front doors at Madison Square Garden? What does that mean? Oh, now they're telling us the vaccine has a delayed response. Okay, delayed by how long? They don't say. Yes, they did. About 10 days. If vaccines work, why are normal people banned from living normal lives? (sighs) Okay, this is another nonsense question, but I'll do my best. They're not, (laughs) but... Normal lives are difficult because not enough people are getting vaccinated because we didn't know how well being vaccinated would guard against spreading this particular disease and how it changes over time. So we're cautious and didn't want to dive right back into another surge of cases, hospitalizations and death. So maybe it doesn't work and they're simply not telling you that. 
No, it does. They're even playing down how effective it really is to avoid overselling it. What's the other potential explanation? Well, if you were asking a legitimate question before, you wouldn't have to ask this one because it's already answered, but because not enough people are vaccinated, because we didn't know how well it protected against spreading, because it is better to be cautious. There you go. And scene. <laughs> ah, yes. See, I can take this bow tie off and go take a bath for three days because that felt icky. Vomit up all the disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> I should have just done that for, for every question. I should have just gone. That's all, he's, that's all he's doing. He's just word vomit nonsense. Yep. Okay, let's go ahead and just wrap up with one more quick discussion about the the general reasons why people are hesitant, and then we're going to finish this episode, and then we'll come back with part two to talk about the pretend reasons, the motivated reasons, and what we can possibly do about this as a species. Mm-hmm. I like it. All right, so the final general reason here is, again, because it was developed quickly. It was. It legitimately was developed quickly. We've already more or less described why and, and how, but just as a real quick overview, there were a lot of barriers to being able to develop vaccines. There was usually a small group of people working with limited resources, with limited time on single platforms. We now have everybody using every platform, using all the resources, using all the time. They also made it so that things that normally would happen sequentially, they just did them all at the same time, again, because they had a vast number of resources, coordinated efforts across different departments, coordinated efforts across different groups of people, and people sharing their information. So it was a recipe for success like we have almost never seen before as a species. Yeah, I mean, again, it's an incredible feat, really, truly. The other part of this is, People will say, I don't want to be a guinea pig. But in the words of the great George Takai, this is probably my favorite quote about any about the entire argument. Yeah. They say, quote, the irony of anti-vaxxers saying that they don't want to be a part of an experiment without realizing they are now the control group. End quote. Yep. Uh, I mean, you couldn't say it better myself. Life is an experiment. This pandemic is an experiment. You're going to be a one of two conditions of that experiment. The experimental group or the control group. Yeah. Whether you want to be or not. That's right. You're there. (laughs) (laughs) You you don't really get a choice on the matter. You are there. So that's, I think, a really nice way of saying it. Yeah. Maybe that actually belonged in in the motivated reasons instead, because I think the the people thinking that they belonged to some kind of vast experiment, we're going to get into more about that, actually. So, yeah, let's go ahead and wrap this up now. As I said, next time when we come back, we're going to talk about the pretend reasons we're going to talk about the motivated reasons and what we can do about this hesitancy toward this vaccine that is going to help us get out of a plague that is destroying our species and our world. Yep, absolutely. I do want to leave with, as you may have noticed, we're not talking about all vaccine hesitancy or anti-vax rhetoric. We are going to tackle this more in the future, but wanted to just really dive into, because this is so contemporary to what's going on in the world, a really clear exploration of what's going on with why people are vaccine hesitant about this specific vaccine, the COVID-19 vaccine. Yeah. It is a different beast. We are going to have a conversation about the other vaccines and it's going to be more nuanced and all that. Not that this isn't nuanced, but it's going to be a little bit of a different discussion with a lot more detail in it. But this is, I think, a really important discussion about why people are really struggling with this. Okay. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for recording with me today, Shane. Again, if you would like to find out more about this and other episodes, find us on Patreon. 
You get all kinds of bonus cool stuff. If you sign up with us there, you can join our Discord server where we chat with one another. I think I would ask, uh, share this with some people you know. Uh, we are really deliberately trying to take on, although we're going to be snarky toward those people who are sort of misinformation and lying and trying to make things worse, we're really trying to take this on in a, from a compassionate point, point of view. The people who are vaccine hesitant are not bad people. Yep. They're people like we are. And that there are reasons for them to be hesitant. And we want to explore what those reasons are and see if we can offer some kind of help and insight. So if you know someone who would benefit from this, please share this episode with them. If you have any suggestions for how we can even communicate this message better, feel free to reach out to us. You can reach us at info at www.wwdpodcast.com. Yep. All right. You got anything else? Nope. I don't have anything else today. Okay, we're going to come back and do recommendations at the end of the second episode, so catch them there. Yeah. But for now, this is Abraham. And this is Shane. Proud. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at WWD Podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day. I, I checked myself, but now I need to um, wreck yourself. I need to wreck myself. That's right. <laughs> and recombinant, 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 recombinant subunit adju, 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 adju Christ. Um, <laughs> ad, adjuvenated, adjuven, adju, adjuvanted. Okay. Recombinant subunit adjuvanted protein.